Hey, people, thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks for joining with us. This is our Life Church Home broadcast, and this is available on iTunes or it's on our website. And we hope that you spend some time finding more about our ministry. I pray that it impacts your life as much as it has here at Life Church. Now I'm going to ask for something that probably you've never heard a preacher ask for before. I'm going to ask that no one takes notes today. I'm going to ask you to put your notebook away, put your phone down, put your iPad off. Because this morning I'm not communicating to a notebook, I'm communicating to your hearts. And you know, you can get the CD afterwards and go back afterwards and take notes afterwards and revisit the word afterwards. I encourage you all to do that on a regular basis. If you were at Soul Night, to get the CD from Soul Night and listen to what it is that we're saying to the heart of the church. But so often we can sit with our notebook out and our pen and paper and our iPad and we get so distracted. And I don't want anyone to be distracted. And I think this is the fourth time I've spoken this week since I got home. And I really have nothing new to say than the last three times that I spoke. Because I feel that God is holding me in a place that I am supposed to be held in as a leader to this house to help you get to the same place. Some of you may already be there. But I believe that God asks us as leaders to take the people somewhere. He asks us to take our church somewhere. He asks us to take you on a journey. He asks us to come before him on your behalf. Being a leader is not an easy task because there are many things that oftentimes I would like to say, but God will not permit me to say because it's not about what I want to say or where I would like to go or where I would like to take the church or our team would like to take the church. It's not about that. This is God's house. You are God's people. This is God's church. And so this morning, I I am holding you where God is holding me and I am speaking to you from a place that inside of me is very raw, is very ripped open. I feel like I'm having open heart surgery every day with God in this season in the best possible way. And we have lead here with pastors from around the country that came and I don't know that they knew what they were coming for. I think they thought they'd come and fill their notebook and I think they went away fairly wrecked in the best possible way. Because God challenged me and I challenged them of why do we even do what we do as leaders? If this is about preaching a great sermon to impress you, we have missed the point. Why, why are we here this morning? Why do we come to church? Why do we set this time aside? I was reading on the internet a couple of very uh, brilliant pastors around the world that had written a blog in response to a more, I guess, uh, older uh, a minister in the church that has been ministering for years that had written a blog saying, you know, I'm kind of like, I, I do ministry, but I don't do church. I don't need to go anymore because, you know, I've done years of church and and, and these very accomplished, brilliant pastors wrote, thank you for your blog, but I will never subscribe to that way of thinking. Because the moment you think church is you coming if you are needed or required or because you're supposed to preach that morning is the moment you have lost touch with what God's heart is for the church. 
I pray to God that we never get like that. None of us get like that. None of us get so familiar that this becomes optional. It's kind of one of the things we might do, we might not do. Depends on the weather. Depends on if our car's working. Depends on if the kids got up and had a good night's sleep. Depends on whether, you know, I'm feeling great. Depends on whether I've fallen out with a friend this week or haven't fallen out with a friend this week. On those reasons, I'll decide whether I come to the house of God. And, 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 the, and the person that wrote this response, a pastor that wrote this response, made a brilliant analogy. And he said, you know, church, when you come into church, it's like, it's like coming to the dinner table. And he said, there's way too many adults that are like stroppy teenagers that come to the dinner table and they come if they like the food and they come if they like who's serving the food and they come if the table's set in the way and if it doesn't clash with their favorite TV show and if any of those things are not lined up they come to the table with a bit of an attitude and a dragging feet like oh Mia Mia impress me make me my favorite food and he said God this pastor saying God help us if that's how we treat the thing that Christ died for that the that the apostles built that the Bible is full of that when Jesus turned to the disciples, he said, build my church, feed my sheep, build my church. Peter, build my church. It was not, I'm out of here, so you do what you want, set up where you want, go where you want. It was like, I need you to build something because I'm coming back for something. I'm coming back for a church, a body of people. And the church is not about whether we like it or not on a particular day. It's about a commitment to something that will change our world. Something that will change our communities. And I feel arrested by God and challenged all over again to say, what is it that we want to see in our generation? I'm asking you this morning, what do you want to see in your generation? I mean, what do you want to see on the streets of Bradford, on the streets of Belfast, on the streets where you live in Ilkley or in Bingley or in Keithley or wherever you come from? I'm asking you what, what actually, when you, when you close your eyes and you think this is where my dream would be, what, what is that? And if your answer is, well, my dream would be to live with the sun always shining and a beach five feet from my door and have lots of money in the bank and, and, and ride in a beautiful car and, and, and have the perfect marriage with the perfect ch- children. I, I want to challenge you today and say, really? Is that it? Because all that dream speaks of itself. And I'm all for a beach if God wants you to have a beach. And I'm all for a nice car if God is going to bless you with a nice car. But if that is your dream for your life, we have seriously missed the point of why we are here today. We have seriously missed the reason of why we are here. Because that's not the Christianity. That's not the faith that I signed up for. I didn't sign up for a faith that would make my life hunky-dory and everything perfect. I signed up to serve Jesus Christ like I sang in the worship because he gave his life for me. And I am so grateful that he gave his life for me. I'm so grateful that he forgave my sins. I'm so forgetful, grateful that he covered me with his grace. I'm so grateful that with his barren womb was able to bear a baby when everyone said it wouldn't. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that I woke up this morning with breath in my lungs and hope in my heart. Even though everything might not be perfect and I might not have the money in the bank and I might not have the ideal job, I'm telling you, I am saved and I am going to spend eternity with him. And 
I just think that somewhere along the lines we forget, we just forget, we just get so preoccupied. We just forget what this is all about and our ideal life, our dream for our life is so small and so pitiful and so self-centered. And then we wonder why God's not working with us and giving us the beach and giving us the car and giving us the house because we've got it all the wrong way around. Because the Bible says, seek first the kingdom and all that stuff he can add. If he needs to, he can add. He can sort it out in a heartbeat. I've seen him do it in my life. But if you seek first the stuff and the kingdom comes last, you're on a hiding to nothing. You're going to have stress. You're going to have ulcers. You're going to be up all night worrying. You're going to be freaking out when the stock market does, a, does, does something you didn't want it to do. You're going to be sweating it that your house won't sell. You're going to be freaking out about the kids' school placements because all that stuff is what you think you need to be freaking out about when God goes, it's just stuff. It's just stuff. Who, who, who are you worshipping? Who, who is it that you say I am? Because if you say I am the great I am, why would you worry about things that don't make any difference in the long scale of life? You know, I tweeted yesterday, I put out a picture on social media that got a lot of people talking. And I just asked a question. What matters most? What you want or what God wants? Because show me your life and I'll show you the answer. Your life tells me. What matters most? What you want or what God wants? There's a passage in Haggai. And it's just a little passage that I've been captured and spent a lot of time around this week. And it's a picture of, I think, what God is asking us this morning. Not in a way that is judgmental, but in a way that is challenging. See, I I think God is desperate. I think God weeps over the lostness of our world. I think God looks at his church, says, please, someone, somewhere, understand that you at any point in time can turn this thing around. The greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, that I have given you power and authority from on high. And it doesn't rest in a few people that say yes, it rests in all of us corporately saying yes. Imagine if all of us corporately said yes to having a life that reflected him more than it reflected our own wants and desires. Imagine what our street would look like, our community would look like. Imagine what the school playground would look like. I'm telling you, we would be fierce for Jesus. And in this passage, the people of God, they have been brought out of exile and they've been given their freedom and they've been free for, from exile for 15 years. And you know, they got their freedom and they were like, thank you very much. And then clearly, once they got their freedom, they began to use their freedom for whatever it was that they felt they wanted to be free to do. And so they've been busy. They've been busy building their houses. They've been busy perfecting their lawns. They've been busy painting their fences and getting everything just right. And then God speaks. And this is what he says to them. This is what your Lord, the Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of God. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while my house remains in ruins? This is what the Lord Almighty says. You better give careful thought to your ways for you've planted much, but you're not harvesting much. You eat, but you're never satisfied. 
You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes and you can't get warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse that seems to have holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways and go up into the mountains. Bring down the timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and I may be honored, says the Lord. For you expected much, but see, it's turned out to be little. What you brought home was blown away. Why? Because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. And I read that and I thought, oh God, what if our wrong priorities have caused heaven to withhold its dew and not bless the crops? What if our lack of getting on the same page as you has slowed down something far bigger than us on our generational lifespan? What if our tardiness has caused less people to enter the kingdom of heaven? What if our slowness to respond to the voice of God has meant that instead of something taking six months, it's taken six years? And I began to say, oh God, I don't want to be someone that holds up the falling of dew in our lifetime. I don't want to be someone who causes there to be a backlog of blessing because I am so concerned with my own blessings. And God was challenging them and saying, hey, it's not that I don't care that you have your house, but I care that your house seems to come always before my house. I care that you spend your time more on what you have deemed important than what I have deemed important. And God gave them instruction, get up the mountain and go get the timber. And in my spirit, I feel God saying, get up the mountain, get up the mountain, go climb again. Go climb again for the things that matter. Go climb again for the things that I value. Go climb again and bring to the house of God that sacrifice that might not benefit you in the immediate, but it's not about your house. It's about my house. Get up the mountain. And I think that God is looking at our house and saying, you are awesome. You're an awesome bunch of people. I mean, you're saved, you're set free. You might not have everything that you think that you need, but look at your life. Look at how God has smiled on your life. Look at the fact that your children are well and that you have a home and you have a roof over your head and you have friends in your world. I mean, look at your life. You are blessed. But I often think that sometimes we are so spoiled. I said on soul night, When I was talking to the church, I said, you know what? We roll in this car park and there's car parking and it's free. And then we get out of our cars and there's people ushering us in and welcoming us. And then we walk through the doors and the building is warm and it's heated and it's cleaned and it looks beautiful. And then we walk up a little few flight of steps and there's Starbucks with all the coffee shop and cakes that you could ever wish or dream And you go and you eat and you sit and you have your coffee while your kids are freely being looked after, entertained your little brat that was screaming and yelling in the car. You deliver safely to someone else and say, thank you very much. And you wander off and you're in your own little space and you come and you have a comfy seat that has a a, a cushion on it. Some of you, if you get in the blue seats and you have a seat, let's just start there. You have a seat. A seat that you didn't have to go collect from the back because somebody came this week and put it out for you and changed the configuration of this room four times this week for four different events. Someone did that for you. And then they usher you into your seat. 
And then you have amazing worship. No bum notes. We haven't got Les Dawson on the piano. I mean, they've rehearsed. The team have rehearsed. They've come down and they've rehearsed for you to enhance your worship experience. And they came down and they left their kids at home and they came here and volunteers not paid came and served and practiced their vocal and, and, and the sound guys and the tech guys and came down so that you could have a great worship experience. And then people have labored in the word and been before God and on their face before God for a word to feed you good food. And people over there feeding your kids good food and lift leaders coming on their weekend down here to learn so that they can help your teenagers better and believe in your teenagers and pray for your teenagers. And then you get in your car and you go and have your nice Sunday lunch. And I think, wow, God help us that we forget why we are here. That we get so spoiled coming and doing church the way we do church every week that it becomes one of those things I might do, I might not do. I might lift my hands, I might not lift my hands. I might sing with all my heart, I might not sing with all my heart because I really am not feeling great this morning. And I feel like God going, really? Because <laughs> Christ was worshipping me on a cross. I see no nails in your hands this morning. I told the soul night, that when I was in America, I had the privilege, the amazing privilege of spending time with a woman whose husband right now is in fear for his life in prison in Iran simply because he's a Christian. And he's an American citizen with two young babies, two little girls. And he went out to open an orphanage in Iran. And he's a pastor of a church. And whilst he was out there, he was taken he was beaten with an inch of his life, internal bleeding, treated like the worst of the worst, and two and a half years later is still in prison. And I had the privilege of meeting his wife, praying with his wife. And I tell you, it will challenge you to the core when you stand next to a woman that's believing God for her husband to be free just because he said the name of Jesus. When we sometimes don't say the name of Jesus for seven days until we get to church. It will challenge you to your core. And I just think that God is saying, what do you want? What, what do you want? What do you want? What, what, do you want or, what do you want to spiritually order for your nation? Or haven't you even thought about it because you're too, too consumed about what you're ordering for your own belly? What do you want to order for your children and your children's children? What, what, what do you want to order for their future? That when they are in their teenage years, that you paid a price so that they could have an experience where they came so close to God. I began to write down the things that I would love to see. Oh God, I'd love to live a life where people saw you before they saw me. Oh God, I'd love to speak words of life everywhere I went, even though sometimes I don't feel like, oh God, I'd love to walk my kids to school, knowing that more people that I bump into know of Jesus than they don't know of Jesus. Oh God, I'd love that when I take my daughter soon to high school, that I'm not in fear because of drugs or because of bullying or because of immorality in young people's lives because they are so lost. I'd love that the name of Jesus can be spoken in her school and that she's celebrated for her faith in you. Oh God, I'd love that every Sunday morning I see so many people come to you that I don't even know what to do with them because they're coming and they're flooding the altar. And I would love to see families where, where moms and dads are not yet saved in our house to come to Christ, where, where fathers 
fathers and mothers that are older in years still come to Christ before they go to the next place, wherever they are deemed to go. I would love to see in our worship that cancer is gone. I'd love to see as we worship that miracles happen. I'd love to see in our worship that we can't hear anything other than an angelic voice that is joining us. I'd love that when I step foot on this place and in this place, I feel I am on holy ground because it's so saturated in prayer and belief. Oh God, I'd love that we went into our communities and we have more resource than we know what to do with. That there's so much money in our pockets in the right sense that we can help whoever so will come to us. I would love that we're able to say to that family, we can help you with a church and we have provision because people give for people like you. I would love that we never have to worry and stress over a bill to keep our lights on or a bill about what we can or can't do or wait two years, three years to fix toilets in a church building. When these are our toilets that our kids use, I would love God that we just have provision for the miracle. Oh God, I'd love that every time I bump into someone in our team, they are so oozing vision for our cities. Oh God, I'd love to see the church of God alive on every continent, bright and shining. And then I began to think, well, okay. I began to say, God, God say to me, okay, awesome. Here's the bill. You can order whatever you want, but you're going to have to be willing to pay. Here's the bill. Oh, well, I'll just pass that to the pastoral department, Lord. And I'll just believe for it. But you know, I don't do, you know, I'm not a church member of staff. You know, I'm not paid. This is not my, you know, it's all right, Charlotte. You're talking about something that's your job. <laughs> I tell you, I pray to God that you know that if this was not my job, I would be just as bonkers for Jesus. And those that know me, have known me over any time will tell you. That I was this crazy for Jesus when I was a teenager. I was this crazy for Jesus when I was in university. I would drive up the motorway every Sunday just to be in the house of God. Because I was like, I just need to be here. I know I'm down there studying, but I just need to be here around my family in God. I, I need to contribute. When I worked at Manpower for years, I, I, I was there and I was witnessing. And I was bringing people and I was believing God for a breakthrough in my office. Why? Because when it gets in you, it doesn't matter where you are. Doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter who you spend your time with, it's on you and it's in you. And I just think, what do we think it's going to take to turn our nation around? Ordinary people that see that they are not called to live an ordinary life. People with a bigger dream than themselves, people that absolutely get Jesus on the inside of them to the point where he just tips out of them. Changes the way your home feels. If your home feels dry, you need more Jesus in it. If you sit down at your table and you look at your finances with your wife or with your husband and stress begins to rise up and worry begins to mount, you need more Jesus at the table. You need to sit down and say, this is not something that we need to be stressing about. It's something we need to be praying about. We actually need to stop talking. We need to start praying. We actually need to start doing what the Bible tells us and sow a seed and be generous and tithe and do what the Bible tells us because God tells us if we follow his instruction, he will reward, he will follow. And God says, seek first the kingdom. I think we need to seek first the kingdom and some stuff's going to change. And maybe, maybe it's because I'm now 40. Maybe something happened in me of realizing, hey, I've lived 40 years. My time is getting shorter. I don't know whether it's an urgency in me or a realization. I don't know. But I thank God that he bashed me up the side of the head and said, girl, this is it. You've already had 40. 
What do you want the next 40 to look like? Would you be satisfied if two or three people came to Christ this month? Or will it break your heart? Because it's not enough. Will it bother you on the inside that we roll on into the service 10 minutes after the service has started? Because I tell you what, it bothers God. Because I think we say, oh, I'm desperate for you, Lord, but I'm just going to get my latte down. Oh God, I'm desperate for you to fix my bills that I can't pay this week. And God goes, is that all? Is that all you're desperate for? Are you not desperate that your neighbor's going to hell? Are you not desperate that your kids are in an environment that the church of God is called to change? Are you not desperate that that person in your life group has a son that's addicted right now and needs you to stand with them in prayer? Are you not desperate? I think God just says, what do you want? And here's the, here's the deal. If you are not bothered about any of that stuff, then that's your choice. I can't force and I don't want to force anyone to have a life like I'm talking about because the life that I'm talking about looks like a life that's surrendered. And I'm not going to force, we're not going to force, but we will unapologetically be surrendered as leaders. And if you can sit in this and just go, I'm cool. They're just a little bit crazy. I'm not ready to be crazy. Then that's fine. Hang around with us crazies. You never know what might rub off on you. But I think God's saying, what do you want? Is it a time for you to be living in your paneled houses while my house still needs to be built? Is it? Is it a time? And I think the answer is no, it's not a time. It's not a time. Because evil's getting stronger and the church needs to shine brighter. And in our absence, other things will emerge. And in our laying down on the job, other things will emerge. And I'm telling you, we're not playing a game. And the enemy goes, you just take care of your house. You know, the joke of it is, whilst I'm preparing this message, I've not painted in my house for eight years. We've been in the same house now for nearly eight. I've not done any DIY painting up there. And the walls have got, you know, they'd get children's fingerprints on them and chocolate stains. And, and so I was like, I need to actually do some DIY in my house because I'm home for a week. And this would be a good time, Charlotte, to actually sort it out. And so I'm actually looking at paint swatches whilst I'm preparing this message about, it doesn't matter about your paneled houses. It matters about God's house. And you know what? I couldn't actually give a rip about the paint for my house. I know I need to do it. But inside me, it doesn't consume me. It doesn't excite me. It doesn't thrill me. It'll be great when it's done, but it's not my drive. And, and I think God's saying, what is your drive? What is your drive? I'm glad that you have a career that you love. I think that's what God wants you to have a career that you love. But do you love it more than him? <laughs> I'm glad that you have the boyfriend you prayed for after being single all these years. But seriously, do you love him more than you love me? Remember when you first fell in love, some of you younger people are like, I'm waiting for it to happen. Some of you older people are like, I'm still waiting for it to happen. But if you fell in love and you saw her, saw him, your eyes met across the room and your heart went pitter-patter. I tell you, when that moment happens inside of you, they say, how do you know? You know, you used to ask, you used to ask all the time before I met Steve, how do you know it's the one? You know, you'd get asked that a lot when we were youth pastors. We'd get asked all the time, how do you know if this is the one? And people would just say, you know, you just know. When you fall in love, you just know. You just, you just know. And I tell you, there ain't nothing that you wouldn't do for that person. 
I mean, some of you guys in here have done crazy things for that girl's affection. I mean, you would be embarrassed if people in this room knew the lengths you have gone to. You've worn clothes that you would never, ever wear before because she tells you you look hot in them, so you wear them. I mean, you've worn trousers that are way too tight and you can barely breathe. Just suck that gut in for three hours over dinner because you're trying to impress her. You've bought stuff. You've gone into shops you would never normally go into and you have made a fool of yourself for, for love. Why? Because when you fall in love, everything about your life prioritizes around what you love. And when you fell in love with Jesus, your world shifted and he became the center and you were like, I love you, Lord. I'm so grateful to you. But oh, how easy it is to drift from that place of love. How easy it is to not even open the book. The love story. Because, you know, I've got spreadsheets from work. How easy it is to not ask God what he thinks because you know what? This is what my wife thinks or my husband thinks or my mother thinks, so I'll do that. I think God looks at us in the Western world and says, hey, it's all laid out for you. The building, the provision, amazing worship, freedom. And I'm asking you, what are you doing with your freedom? You know, there's a story in Genesis 22, where God spoke to Abraham and he said, Abraham, I'm asking something of you. And you read that story and you're like, how could God ask something so huge? Because he asked Abraham to take his one and only son and sacrifice him. And the Bible records that he said to Abraham, I want you to take the thing that you love, the boy that you love, that you love so very much, your only one that you love so very much, and I want you to lay it down. And you know, I think Abraham, in that moment, would have had many emotions. Maybe like you are having right now. Like I have had over the last few months with God. But if I lay that down, God... I mean, if I lay it down, does that mean that I don't get to do it anymore? Because I love doing that. I I love my career. I love my social life the way it is. I I love my my piles of money. I I I love that I'm in control. And God said to him, I need you to lay it down. I need you to surrender. See, Isaac was a gift from God to Abraham. But Abraham was in danger of making it about the gift, not about God. He said, lay it down, would you? Would you just lay it down? Would you take the thing that you love and would you just lay it down? And I believe that his surrender was the tipping point for his future. And I also believe it's the same for our house. I believe the size of our surrender will affect the size of our future. And you might say, well, I don't really want our future to look any bigger. I mean, we're helping people in Poland. We're helping people in the estates. The building's nice and full. You know, we've only got a few seats empty. And I'm like, there we go again. We've made it about what we want. And I say to our team all the time, we need to be willing 
to preach three, four times on a Sunday if we need to, to fit people in. We need to be willing to have volunteer teams that say, I'll come down earlier and I'll stay later if that's what it requires to get more people in. And until we're willing to pay that bill, we can't see the future that we say we desire for. It says Abraham took Isaac, didn't even hesitate. Got up, took him, went up the mountain. Because surrender is an action. It's not a prayer. Oh yes, Lord, I release him. No, you have to actually go get him, take him up the mountain with a knife in your pocket and be willing to follow through. And you know, that passage is the first time that the word worship is used in the Bible. It says he went up and he worshipped. Interesting how worship's first appearance is next to the word sacrifice. Because that's what true worship is. True worship is not, I feel good, so I'm going to sing some happy songs today. True worship is, I feel crummy, and I'm going to sing some happy songs today. And I know we may know this. This is not rocket science. (laughs) But I'm not asking for us to know this. I'm asking us to know this. I'm asking us to move from knowing it and amening it and writing a note in our book about it and then going about our week like that notebook has nothing to do with Monday through to Saturday. You know, I've heard people say, well, revival happens in Africa because you know it's Africa. (laughs) Really? I think people are desperate and that's why revival happens. I think people are not so enamoured with their life. They just want Jesus. Because if it, oh, it's because it's Africa. How do you explain Australia? And all that God's doing through Hillsong. Because that ain't Africa. That's Australia where people have nice houses, nice cars, running water. But I have watched those churches. They're friends of ours. You know what I bump into? Desperation, sacrifice, surrender. Why not in Belfast? Why not in Poland? Why not in Leeds? Why not in Bradford? God's not holding back. He's looking for surrender. 15 years, they'd just been kicking their heels, enjoying their life, singing songs of worship. And God says after 15 years, what time is it? What time is it? Is it time that this is the priority? Or is it time that we really got serious? And I don't want you ever to feel that Sunday morning is a nice church service that you do in your week to get brownie points from heaven. I want you to understand this is what we were called to be. The church of God. The house of God. The people of God to come, to sit at his feet, to lean in, to bring him our best worship, to be here for the person that sits three rows behind you, to be here for the person that needs your prayers, needs your support, to be here as a family, to model something to our community of unity and of strength and of hope. So this morning, this is not a cozy, lovely service that you can go home and make your life a little bit better with. And I don't apologize for that because <laughs> I don't want to live a life that's average. I don't want to be overwhelmed by 
bad news. I want to overwhelm it with good news. I say, well, no one's ever seen a church like that in this part of the world. Great. Then we can be the first. We can be the first. Is it possible? Is it possible? I read my Bible and God used people that had way less going for them than us. It's entirely, entirely possible. I believe it with all my heart. It's entirely possible to have a church of 10,000 people if we so choose. Because when all of those people understand what we are doing and what we're called to be and what we're part of, I tell you, you can't, you won't be able to fit them in. And as I was in America on the Dare to Be tour, the back of beyond some places that we ended up in, not the glamorous, not the places where everybody goes. I mean, the back of beyond where nobody goes. With thick snow, seven foot snow drifts and freezing cold temperatures. I drove round to the back of the building to get ready to go. And the doors were not yet open. And I saw women with babies on hip, seven foot of snow, queuing, standing in the freezing cold, wrapped all around the building. And inside I thought, would I do that? I mean, am I that bothered? Am I that desperate? Am I that concerned to be where you need me to be? Come hell or high water, I'll be there. I think Christ felt like going to a cross. I don't think the disciples felt like being flogged. I'm sure there were days when they wanted to pull the cover over their head and pretend they weren't a disciple. I'm telling you, we've got to stop it. We've got to be ruined. So this is my surrender. I surrender financially and I put you first. I surrender my diary and I put you first. I surrender my pride and I say sorry. I surrender my stubbornness. Surrender my time and I make room for you, God. Surrender my thoughts and I clear space. Surrender my family time and I bring my family time to you. Surrender my gift and my talent and all my brilliance. Say, God, I wouldn't have it if it wasn't for you. Surrender my excuses. Well, I couldn't because. Well, I have this, well, I have that. You know, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, I've done everything that you asked me to do. Now show me the way to access heaven. <laughs> and he turned and he went for the one thing that was yet to be surrendered. He said, I'm glad you've done everything. I'm glad you've been kind. I'm glad you've been good. I'm glad you've been upstanding but there's one thing I want your money he was a rich young ruler and he says he looked at Jesus and he turned away 
and he left eternal life for a bag of gold. Was Jesus being mean for not commending him for all the good things he did? No, Jesus was saying there's a cost. He didn't say he can't have it back. (laughs) He wasn't annoyed that he was rich, but he was saying that that money's got more hold on you than I do. I just need you to lay it down. God didn't take Isaac. He gave him Isaac back. But God needed to know that Isaac was not the full stop. He needed to know that Abraham was more concerned about nations than he was about his own desires. So don't be surprised if today thoughts pop in your head, testing you. (laughs) 